Welcome back to the Multiple Theory Podcast from the University of Toronto Jungian Association. This is the second episode in my discussion with Anderson Todd. In the last episode, we got to know Anderson and discussed the empirical background of the Jungian framework, Anderson's take on dreams and their interpretation, and the modern search for wisdom and meaning. In this episode, we'll continue with the search for wisdom and what the Jungian framework can contribute to it in its place among the great political, mystical, and religious traditions of the world. Do you see in Jung a, the sort of critique of modern society and, you know, sort of the stems of the meaning crisis that we talked about today? Well, yes, in some ways. I mean, Jung, um, John uh, uh, Verveke, uh has taken to referring to Jung as being sort of one of the prophets of the meaning crisis, you know, uh, a an early 20th century figure that uh, delineated a bunch of the problems that we're now seeing sort of come to fuller fruition. Um, I think that many of the concerns that Jung had about, you know, things like the disconnection of uh, world and psyche, which is something that Jung is sort of very concerned with, and indeed informs things like his concept of synchronicity, right? At some point, he's undertaking the task of attempting to solve the mind-body problem, basically. And like, how does this connect together? How does our experience connect back to the world? That is a huge problem. And I tend to agree with John's formulation that it is one of the key drivers for, you know, the meaning crisis. But, um, you know, at some point I remember reading through one of Jung's books where he's talking about sort of the coming civilization. And he's like, you know, we're in for a rocky patch here, right? Civilization. And by that, he means, of course, you know, Western European civilization, Christianity has really kind of begun ungluing at the seams. And, you know, we're in for this rough transition period. And he said, and yeah, you know, uh, given the trends that we're seeing now, that ought to all come together in, you know, about 600 years. And when I read that, it really, it, it hit me, right? Because, of course, there is a tendency to think about now as being, was it in civilizations in transition? Maybe. Anyway, um, there's, this, uh, there's this tendency to think, you know, like now we're on the cusp of the revolution. Now is when, you know, and what he's saying is, no, look, there's a process which takes time. And, you know, how we do, in fact, change our cultural conceptions and so on and so forth. That's obviously a super complex problem. And I'm deeply invested in sort of prospective futurology and how we think about those kinds of trends, not just in psychology and depth psychology. But the idea that this is a long transformative arc is something that appeals to me enormously. And so I think that the fact that we have begun to see certain kinds of shifts um, is potentially indicative uh, of that. Although I hesitate to take politics as a foregrounded, politics is epiphenomenal as far as I can tell. Uh, is what I'm saying. And I think it's a much more central dictum for some interpretations of this kind of thing than I would tend to take it. Politics are, are typically epiphenomenal and symptomatic, uh, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. This long-range transition stuff makes a lot of sense to me. And I am often inclined to say that, uh, you know, and I think that there's been a recognition of this for on and off at least a century, uh, we as a species need to become something else uh, if we intend to survive. Uh, the way that we're currently constituted is, <laughs> is apparently a rapacious dead end. 
Um, and so we sort of have to reconfigure our civilization. And a lot of that is going to mean reconfiguring uh, to a great extent uh, or reinterpreting human nature. And I think that that will end up partaking at some level, I mean, human nature in big, big quotation marks, big scare quotes. Uh, but it's going to mean, you know, partly obviously drawing inspirations from the past, but partly also synthesizing material towards the future. Um, you know, there are going to be new modes of being, in my opinion. Um, and so this is, I think my fundamental optimism is coming through there. You know, I think we're in for a very rough ride. Um, but I very much doubt that the human story is due to stop anytime soon. I think we're just about to enter a sort of new chapter, new book to become something different. It is really fascinating to me how um, not just Jung, but of in these other things I've been reading, like Thelema and astrology have all been talking about this age that happens like right around the 60s. Um, and it started to, as we're now feeling its effects. Um, interesting that they should all align here, I suppose. Yeah, astrology is a tough one for me. Um, as I've, I've told many people, I, I, like I said, I hold my metaphysics very lightly. And I typically, you know, to some extent pride myself on my ability to move into a metaphysical system and sort of accept its premises if right to, to suspend disbelief and take it on in the way that I would take on you know a fictional world but with seriousness and right and astrology is often a pretty tough pill for me to swallow um the one exception plane overhead that's nice um the 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 one exception I would say is that I uh, a few years a few ten maybe years ago I read um uh, Cosmos and Psyche by Tarnas, Richard Tarnas, which uh, closer than any other book I've read on astrology uh, caused the kind of lightning bolt strike of um, apparent plausibility enough to sort of get a rise so that I could inhabit the, the worldview for a bit. But yeah, I mean, you know, when I look at the 1960s, um, I have to admit that I I tend to look at it and think like, well, yeah, of course, it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. We had a huge, uh, we had a huge demographic bump uh, combined together with being the material peak of Western civilization. So if you get an unprecedented degree of wealth and an unprecedentedly large bump in the youth population, everything is going to feel transformative. But you know, whether or not that's sort of pegged to some kind of external cycle that we can predict by the movement of the stars or, you know, uh, I'm not inclined to think that human numbering systems or interpretive systems have quite that much structuring power. Yes, I personally don't uh, subscribe my epistemology to the stars, but I enjoy the occasional uh, spooky coincidence <laughs> in my yeah, own for readings. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit it's anomalous that I that I have the hard time that I have with astrology. There's something about the, the, the deterministic aspect of it that, that grates on me. That's what it is. I don't like the idea that the system is sort of rolling like a clock and I can look ahead 400 years and know. Um, so, and, and I recognize, I've spoken with enough people who are quite serious about astrology to recognize that this is a blockage that I have. And I have no problems entertaining a variety of other you know, metaphysical frameworks. I, I keep up pretty regularly on parapsychology and on any given day, 
the parapsychological field is going to have, you know, six instances of seemingly impossible weirdness that I can nevertheless move myself into accepting long enough to weigh it as a possible premise. Uh, I just, yeah, astrology in particular seems to give me resistance. I don't even have problems with other systems of divination. Tarot, no problem. I Ching, yep, good to go. Um, but uh, but there's something really specifically about that one that, you know, it's complex of mine, clearly. Well, in addition to mind, it's certainly a very old, old and ingrained rejection in our in our scientific legacy. Um, mm -hmm. I've been reading um, Plato's Timaeus and mm -hmm. some of Ptolemy, and it's sort of like the like the the mindset shift to get into these things is so like, incredibly difficult to mm -hmm. as a as, you know as a modern scientific reader. But it's very fascinating to see the degree of. Um, I didn't realize just how alive they imagined the cosmos to be. I thought it was, you know, oh, like, you know, things are animate, but no, it's really like everything is the soul. Right. And I, I think that there's actually a deep, I think there's a deep value um, to being able to shift yourself into that perspective. Although I say shift yourself into, and the standard recommendation that I make in this respect is, you know, it's like, you should be able to shift yourself into other worlds and modes of being. But the, the trick is learning a certain amount of flexible control over that. Um, there are times when being part of a living and meaningful universe, you know, with something approaching free will uh, is terrific. And times when it is crushing and horrible. And there are times when you want things to be more deterministic. Um, you want to things to be more robotic in the world. I don't think that either of those things represents a final position. I think that the, the value is in fact, being able to move into those spaces and, and employ them skillfully. Um, but that's a tough sell with people. People want a final truth. So it's maybe, it's maybe a little bit more um, methodological <laughs> as a, a way to, uh, I don't want to say achieve the goal of being happy, but, but to some degree. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a question of happiness, although I think it does make people happier. But, you know, th there are sort of simple um, examples of this that I use, like, you know, if you have a family dinner, right, um, most of the time people assume that they want more free will and they want less determinism. That's a sort of general assumption they have, right? Free will is good, agency is good, and so on and so forth. Um, if you, however, are having a family dinner and like, you know, your elderly grandmother starts screaming obscenities at you and calling you names. What you will be relieved by at the end of the day is hearing that she's had a mechanical failure of some kind, right? Oh, the problem is that grandma, I mean, it's never obviously good to find out that a relative is like had a stroke or a tumor or something, but this is often relieving for people. They want to hear that it's a mechanical failure. They want to hear that the person screaming at them was a robotic error and that this wasn't an issue of, of choice, right? Likewise, people very often, I mean, when I get a client, if they come in and they're complaining of depression, the first thing I say to them without fail is, go to the doctor and get your thyroid tested. Because if it turns out that you have a thyroid deficiency, right, a thyroid condition, that can affect your mood. And then it's a simple fix. You take some thyroid medication. If people find this out, that's clearly actually a preferable outcome. It's a preferable outcome that their emotional and mental state not be some vastly meaningful thing, but rather that it's just like, no, the issue is one of your parts is broken. Like you need to go to the meat mechanic. Um, so, you know, there are other times, obviously, where being locked into a kind of deterministic prison is quite horrible. But, you know, 
certainly that is not always the case. And sometimes what the, the necessary thing for people to be able to move into to keep going is something like, well, how could I have done any differently? And again, you want to hold that lightly, right? You don't want to treat everything as a given and therefore make self-improvement or change or meaningful decision-making or something. You don't want to render that impossible. But you also don't necessarily want the cosmic burden of with great power comes great responsibility. If you're, you know, and if you're in ultimate control of everything you do and it's just a matter of willpower, then everything that goes wrong in your life is like your fault. Um, neither of these is probably actually a representative position, right? And so, you know, you want to be able to move around in the space. That's kind of a, that's like a microcosmic version of my attitude towards all of it. You want to be able to move all of your belief systems around to some extent. You want to be able to move all of your interpretive frameworks around to some extent. You want to be able to adopt a wide variety of metaphysics so that you can, in a kind of um, and you'll forgive the appropriation of the term, but we don't have a good one uh, elsewise. But there is a kind of neo-shamanic approach to this, where it's like, go to the world that is the world that you need to go to and talk to the figures that you need to talk to and to do what needs to be done to progress life and, you know, heal yourself and others. And that is, you know, to me, that is sort of the primary game. But that's a tough sell for lots of people. I'm not sure everybody's built for that kind of thing. No, it's certainly um, preaching to the choir here, but hopefully <laughs> for those who are more into um, digging into all these sorts of, maybe who have broken that first barrier of finding something valuable and something that seemed ridiculous at first. Mm -hmm. Certainly social psychology and its attribution errors has told us that you know unconsciously we have no problem swinging around free will and determinism to make us happy. Yeah, that's right. Fundamental attribution error is a terrific example of that. If we, if we did it, if we succeeded, it's because we worked real hard and we're smart. Uh, and if we failed, oh, that was the universe, right? And getting locked into one of these positions is just brutal. I mean, you know, I have a term that I've used for many years for people that are really, really locked into this. Uh, and I call them uh, members of the church of the one true way. Um <laughs> So they're sort of believers in the one true way. And very often the thing that I see with these people is like a, a serious degree of rigidity about their own rightness. They're right about everything. They know the right way to do everything. And invariably what comes along with that is, and everybody else is an asshole and they're out to get them. Oh, I should have asked. Am I allowed to say asshole? Oh, feel free. Yes. Okay. So this is like a PG podcast. <laughs> we have an adult audience. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. I figured, I figured. Um, uh, plus assholes, barely a swear word. I mean, it's effectively anatomical. What's wrong with that? Um, so yeah. Uh, so people who are locked into that state have miserable experience. Like the, the, the belief of course, that they're holding onto that's keeping them fixed into that state is like, well, then I'll never be wrong, but it makes their lives demonstrably worse. Right. And it makes them uh, frankly intolerable for the people around them much of the time. Um, right. No, nobody wants to deal with somebody who can never, ever be wrong. <laughs> right. And the idea that you're never wrong is just ridiculous uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, you know, it's an outgrowth a little bit of the sort of failure of introspection to be able to detect flaws in its own in its own construction of self. Right. So, like, you know, we can go through our beliefs um, 
and ask ourselves like, which of my beliefs are wrong? And if we check them out one by one, we're like, nope, I have good reasons to believe this. Nope, that seems like it checks out. Nope, that's fine. So on and so forth. And yet we look around and it's like, well, everybody else seems to have wrong beliefs. So which of my beliefs are wrong? That's a tough game to play. And, you know, Socrates, I think, did an able job at it, but, you know, that killed him. And so uh, people do not like when you start pushing on their systems in this way. It frightens them uh, and it, it irritates them. Um, but uh, it is not easy, I think, for people necessarily to move into that state themselves either. Uh, and yet that's it's that has to be necessary. You know, questioning your premises has to be necessary. Otherwise, uh, yeah, you're, you're locking yourself into an extremely rigid space, in my experience. Socrates has always been a rather interesting example for me since, um, you know, a life unexamined is not worth living has been sort of, I guess, touted by the more uh, inflexibly rational types, you know, as a way to, um, mm. well, we need to take everything and break it apart and question it. But then the second part, I know, all I know is that I know nothing is sort of maybe often forgotten. Yeah, I th very often forgotten. Or or the third dictum, right? All I know is the, the ta erotica, right? That is my only knowledge is the arts of love. Nobody ever brings that up. Or at least it's not typically part of, you know, what, what do they call this? Uh, the, the bro philosophy circuit uh, almost never gets to the ta erotica unless it's they're talking about pickup artistry. So, yeah, I mean... I think the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living is something that itself requires a great deal of examination to make tick. Like what is an examined life? What, what are we talking about when we're talking about life? And what are we talking about when we're talking about examination? I would say that to a great extent, having some self-reflective capacities, yes, like it demonstrably improves your life. If you're never self-reflective, you're basically a, an impulse-driven rigid creature and your life is it's terrible. You know, we see this kind of behavior in certain sorts of people and it does not make for, for a good life to not be self-reflective. But, you know, the examination of ideas when people sort of fetishize um, rational tools or they, you know, they, they get sort of, um, you know, fetishistically hooked on things like cognitive biases as the main way in which you, right? This is all, you know, one-upmanship and pointing the finger at other people 99% of the time. You know, you call out this cognitive bias or that cognitive bias or this, you know, um, uh, fallacy and sort of debate tactic. And generally speaking, it means that that stuff is deployed with a kind of status-driven violence to it. Um, but, you know, when you're taking something apart, uh, you can do it with a hammer and what you end up with is a mangled mess, or you can do it with a set of precision tools and typically learn quite a bit about what's going on in there and then put it back together so that it's working. An examination can be a taking apart and a weighing in a very gentle and precise way. It doesn't necessarily have to be taking a sledgehammer to everything that you think you can smash. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that's very often the way that it shows up for people. Yeah, it's. Um, I suppose it's understandable since Socrates has such, has that role as like, the ironic counterpart to the more, you know, silly characters that are in in Plato's uh, situations. You know, he's taking down Thrasymachus and his, you know, silly, unconsidered things. But then, at the other, on the other hand, you know, he's famously submissive to his daimon, right? Uh, and listening to this um, voice on his own. Yeah, I mean, in general, there's a 
this is part of the sort of skew that modern philosophical training has has taken on. But you know, you look at early philosophers often remind me a little bit of of uh, like Christian saints. There is a somewhat sanitized version that you end up with them as they are, you know, like rational paragons, right? In this way that saints are, are moral paragons of beatific virtue and so on and so forth. But when you actually go back and look, if you look at hagiographies or if you go back and look at really philosophers, what you find are deeply provocative individuals, you know, prophets, saints, and philosophers are very typically tweaking the nose of, you know, stayed and settled society. And that's something that sometimes gets transmitted up the line, but people that are, you know, sort of worshipful of early philosophy treat it as though it's like a Star Trek Vulcan rational discipline. And it's very clearly got elements to it that are, that are more than that. Uh, you know, you think about Socrates, and I think he frankly has a lot in common with like Diogenes, and Diogenes is a deeply provocative kind of figure, and yet nevertheless, obviously, right, has a, a tremendous wisdom to the way that he approaches thought. This is a guy who's completely thumbing social convention. I mean, he sleeps in a barrel, um, you know, he behaves like a dog, he masturbates in public. You know, he generally speaking is a pretty anti-social guy, and he mouthed off to Alexander the Great, uh, who at that point was the ruler of the known world or something, something of this ilk, but not the kind of guy you would generally mouth off to. So, you know, like Christian saints, like prophets, there is a disruptive quality. I think that's present in in those guys and definitely in Socrates. I mean, the guy's a shit disturber. Um, you know, when they ask him how he would like to be sentenced, you know, what he thinks his sentence should be for corrupting the youth, his answer is, well, because it's so taxing to me to continue, I think I should be forced to continue doing my philosophical work and pressing people. And indeed I should draw a state salary so that I may continue it more directly because it creates such suffering for me. It's like, that's the kind of thing that gets you in trouble. Um, you know, the sort of self-important and uptight elements of um, hierarchical authority. I just do not like this kind of stuff. Um, but that's, you know, part of the core thread that makes up those early philosophers. And frankly, there's a state of play that gets left behind very, very often, in my opinion, and instead it gets boiled down into some sort of rational swordsmanship, uh, I think, as you alluded to. Yeah, bringing this back all back to all of this back to Jung, I mean, it mm -hmm. seems we've sort of been harping around concepts of uh, ego and self and the tension between them here and, you know, submission to whatever higher concept one happens to believe in or, you know, staying with them. Um, the more, more free will agency, I do what I want. I'll use my rational sword to cut you in half sort of tension. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, so we're coming back to sort of Jung's idea of, I hesitate to call it wisdom, but this goal of individuation where, you mm -hmm. know, it's one ends up where the self takes one, you know, kicking and screaming or willingly the path you want to go. So there's that sort of, this, that's that sort of overarching, I guess, deterministic thread where, you know, it's just sort of, you're going to end up here. Yeah, but where's here? I mean, this is, so individuation is a, I mean, it's a complex idea. And I'm not sure that there is a sort of settled definition necessarily for it in some ways. But, you know, you are at once going to become more yourself, right? And yet it's very clear that what you're doing in the state of individuation is not just simply like, I don't know, hoovering up and absorbing 
every other force and facet and complex in the psyche, right? And sometimes people have that idea. It's integrative, you know, as though what you're doing is like, um, what's the name of that creature in uh, Spirited Away that goes around No Face? No Face, yeah. That's... No Face, <laughs> right. So people have, I think, a lot of the time this idea that the goal is to like stomp around devouring all of your rogue complexes until suddenly you can be like a, a vast, corpulent, unified. It's, this is not, in my opinion, what you're doing. It's about changing your inner relationships to have the various parts of your psyche, A, communicating effectively with each other, but B, also in effective right relation to each other. So as a very simple example, right? Since you mentioned the, the daimon and you know this idea of subsuming yourself to a higher principle in the self, right? The ego self relationship is sort of invariably scrambled by the um, like catastrophically nervous and self-important ideas that the ego insists on having, right? Um, the ego really, really wants to be like the boss. It wants it to be about it, right? And that in general is of course something that one endeavors to outgrow, um, <laughs> you know, just, just in general in relation to the world. If you really think it's all about you, you are missing something profound and you're gonna be disappointed. This is effectively speaking, and you know, you see this in um, like Melanie Klein and object relations and stuff, right? Uh, as the post Freudians, you know, if you can't learn the lesson that you are not omnipotent and it doesn't all revolve around you, you're gonna be profoundly disappointed the first time you scream and the breast doesn't arrive, right? And, you know, but people still nevertheless often move ahead with a set of very peculiar ideas about about what it is that the ego is doing for them and what it's effective at doing. They want to manage their whole life with the conscious center. And it's like, it doesn't work. You just, you can't do it. Trying to maintain everything in a highly conscious top down. And with surprising frequency, you'll encounter people who do not believe that they have an unconscious. They're just like, no, I'm conscious of everything in my mind. It's like, no, I don't think you are. I really don't think you are. Like, I think that actually there are other, you know, parts of what you would consider your mind that sometimes they're on stage and sometimes they're not. Very often they're operating in the sidelines and what all you do is pick up the effect that they're having in your life. Um, you know, to say nothing of just like the observable things like, you know, what's running your circadian rhythms? Like, are you choosing that? No, you're not choosing it. But because the ego you know, has this intense nervousness, um, I think in lots of ways, it gets it's very rigid, it wants to be the boss and so on and so forth. And people, I think very often conceive of things in this sort of no face way, where it's like, now the ego is gonna go around and it's gonna integrate the shadow. And then it's gonna, ah, I got you, contrasexual soul image. You know, like I'll integrate this, I'll integrate that. That is a monstrous path. It doesn't go well. <laughs> it does exactly what it does in, uh, in uh, spirited away, frankly, it's a bad idea. <laughs> um, Certainly, that's the sense I get of um, per perhaps to those few that June Song was warning us about, where you sort of get this idea of, well, all I need to do to be reach enlightenment is eat my shadow, and <laughs> right. there we go. I'm, and, I'm totally, I'm great. Yeah, and this represents, I think, a, like just a really profound misreading of Jung. Jung is very clear that shadow. The shadow is inexhaustible. It can't just all be devoured. The, the idea, I mean, some of this I'm sure is translation 
is translation error, uh, because certainly there are lots of terms that we have sort of conventional English terms that have been assigned to them, um, but really are not actually especially representative, right? Um, so, you know, my understanding is that the, uh, the term self itself is a bit odd. It should be something closer to the itself, right? That, that this is, a, you know, sort of a, a translation um, hobgoblin that's left over. But yeah, in general, there's a, uh, an idea that people have, and, and it continues to crop up. I mean, people, even people who are relatively deep into this kind of work, um, not infrequently will make one of the two cardinal, what I th consider one of the two sort of cardinal errors. They'll either say, now, is there a technique that we can use to completely and permanently banish this aspect of my mind forever so that it never bothers me again? That's a question you get with quite a bit of frequency once people realize they have something out of their control. Or you get there is a way that I can permanently gobble this up and integrate it so that I will no longer be plagued by it. And it's like, no, in both cases, you shouldn't do that. But is there a way that you can learn how to communicate across the fence a little better so that you're not, you know, getting in each other's faces and running at cross purposes? Yes. Can you acknowledge that, you know, there are pieces of your mind that are like neighbors and you can improve your relationship with them? Yes. Do they serve their own essential purpose? Yes. And if you befriend those pieces, then all of a sudden, at the very least, you're not getting sort of sucker punched by an invisible hand every time you try to move in a certain direction. Um, and so you end up with something that's like an extremely complex set of inner community relationships. Um, and then the question is, what is at the top of that? Or what is at the center of that? And that's where we get to the, to the self. And the idea that you know, some broader principle of meaning making and some, you know, something that is the kind of fountain and source um, that is organizing the rest of the system is not identical with the ego should be obvious given what we know about, you know, the development of the ego and the development of consciousness. Um, but the ego is really, really good at um, attempting to take credit for things. In fact, it's one of its core functions, which is part of the problem. The ego is in part designed, at least we see in sort of scientific experiment, to confabulate agency in places where it doesn't necessarily have it, so that we have a nice coherent story about how we decided to do something. Um, and so, again, this is where you get this, the alchemical dictum, right? Solve et coagula. You want to try to pull these forces apart, and then you want to try to to bring them back together. So solve, pull them apart, coagula, bring them back together. And in this way, what you're doing is, um, to borrow the cognitive science term, simultaneous uh, integration and differentiation. And when you get simultaneous integration and differentiation in a system, what you get is complexification. And the more complex your relationships and stuff become, right, complex in a particular kind of way, the better you are able to deal with the complexities of your own experience and the complexities of the world, right? So you, you become a somewhat more specialized being. That doesn't mean that everybody who does it becomes exactly the same. That's, and I think that's where the individual part of individuation, but of course you're not gonna become literally individual. That's, that's a mistake. It's just that you will become very much you. At least that's how I, that's how I typically tend to approach it. Sort of like a matter of psychic adaptation, then, if we're borrowing these terms of borrowing John Verveke's terms of, you know, yeah, 
optimal grip and such. Yes, I mean, I think that that I think that that's a good jumping off point, but that it's also important to recognize how sweeping the scope of what kind of optimal grip we're discussing is. I mean, this is one of the reasons why when you're talking about the self, capital S self, you know, that language rapidly becomes indistinguishable from religious language, a point that Jung, you know, underlined so, so much so that, you know, Jung sort of says, and I find this argument highly compelling. I mean, basically, as soon as I read his articulation, it became much my own position, which was, you know, the epistemological question of the existence of God is fundamentally unanswerable, right? There's no rational procedure by which we could definitively prove or disprove the existence of God. It's, that's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous game. It's the sort of thing that is like what Wittgenstein would have said, you know, we need to let the fly out of the bottle. Um, however, that is a different question than being able to determine at some, you know, fairly objective level whether or not people are having experiences of these kind and whether or not those experiences are transformative. And those things seem quite obvious. The fact that people are having encounters that can be described in this way, whatever the underlying metaphysic involved in is neither here nor there. And so it doesn't matter at some level whether or not we resolve the epistemological question because the sort of reality of the encounter is still has to be dealt with. And if people do not deal with it, they end up with real problems. And if you think about it, to link this back around to John's position on, on sort of the meaning crisis, John Verveke's position on the meaning crisis, this is partly why I think that this work is so important because I believe that when we are contacting this thing that we can call in Jungian psychology, the self, and we can think of as a kind of um, pre-syntactic, pre-semantic, you know, um, dynamical organizing principle within the psyche that is, you know, co constituting things and so on and so forth. And when we encounter it as clothed in the powerfully charged, profound language of the numinous, right? And symbolic language of the numinous, you know, if we are in fact making contact in ourselves with the center that produces meaning, well, that's the answer. You know, if, if we want meaningful lives, if we're in a, a meaning crisis, the answer is we need to get better at being in a conscious contact with the center of meaning instead of having meaning sort of vomited on us from the outside world or, you know, like handed to us, you know, in as like a golden uh, statuette that we then take as a given and, and uh, sort of commit to with idolatry. It's like a conscious engagement with the centers that produce meaning is the answer to the problem. Uh, in many ways. Uh, and so that's why I, in part, why I think Jung's position is so, so profound and relevant and alive. Um, more than any of the other of the early psychodynamic theorists, he takes these sort of reality of the soul issues seriously. Um, and, you know, whatever, we can quibble all day long about, again, the underlying metaphysic, but in terms of the, the phenomenological aspect, and in terms of the procedural aspect, it's like, we can do a lot there without knowing what things are ultimately made of. I mean, we do it with physics all day long, right? Engineering. <laughs> yeah. Physics, period. Physics. Or for that matter, any field. Every field is full of unanswered fundamental questions. You know, uh, everybody, you know, when I talk to people and they think that sciences have it all wrapped up, I'm like, wow, you really don't know that many scientists. Like, you know, anytime I talk to scientists, you know, in a field different than my own, one of the first things I'll ask is I'll ask about 
the really niggling paradoxes and unsolved questions. And, you know, physics is filled with gaping holes. It's not as though we, like, know what the universe is made of, but that doesn't mean that we can't do things, effective things, that we can't make predictions, that we can't intervene in certain ways that are helpful. And those same principles, ultimately speaking, are going to apply to this level too. You don't have to have some ultimate conclusive sense of reality to be useful. Um, but it does help to have some theories, right? Having some theories on which to sort of plan, experiment, and to test hypotheses and stuff, like that's important as long as you hold it fairly loosely. Yeah. It is interesting to me how, so we reach this sort of point of finding meaning and wisdom, at least within this Jungian set of terms. Mm -hmm. um, it is interesting to me um, how there's more of a role as it seems assigned to the ego in the Jungian conception as there might be in some other sorts of wisdom traditions, you know, the sorts mm -hmm. where the ego tends to end up annihilated um, or in some other form of very non-participatory uh, submission. Yeah. I mean, yes, the, I mean, depth psychology does, depth psychology doesn't treat the ego as useless, right? So in lots of systems, the ego is conceived to be nothing but an atavistic blockage or a shitty defense mechanism or just something that you need to scrape off the bottom of your shoe if you're going to get anywhere seriously, uh, you know, in, in a spiritual domain. And I think that one of the things I like about depth psych, one of the things I think is effective, is that it acknowledges that the ego actually has a vital role to play, right? The idea that the complexes, such as they are, are sort of the organs of the psyche, right? That it is organized. And, you know... Um, <laughs> you know, there's a movement sometimes to treat um, sort of whatever, like atavistic organs in the human body as being something you should just cut out, you know, your appendix, your tonsils, right? There's a period of time they just used to like pull kids' tonsils out for, you know, better to do it before they get infected. But, you know, you usually should be asking the question under those conditions, like, really? You're like, are you sure it's not doing something? Right? Uh, same thing, you know, ah, oh, the appendix is just vestigial, you know, and just cut it out. Uh, no, I think it's probably doing something and maybe you should leave it in rather than go around mucking in a system that you don't actually understand. You know, the ego in, by the same token is doing something quite specific. It's the locus of consciousness. It's just that consciousness is not all encompassing and it's not the only game in town. Most of our processes are not conscious, but that doesn't mean that consciousness isn't important. It just means that it tends to exaggerate its importance and exaggerate its agency. Um, and so I think once consciousness comes into a correct relationship with other components, what you end up with something, you end up with something that is, I think, not dissimilar to say a position in, in Buddhism. There is a kind of transparency that is achievable, but I don't know that necessarily it needs to be sort of totalizing or absolute. And I'm not even technically sure it is. Like, I think that actually, if what we're calling the ego, right, in conventional terms was actually sort of obliterated, you would just be, uh, you know, mi mindless in some important, you would no longer have conscious experience. You would have like a full brain blind sight. And I suspect actually that you'd have quite, this is cognitive science hat on, but I suspect that you would show quite serious deficits of function. Like if you didn't have that um, sort of integrative space to work with. Um, but nevertheless, it is possible clearly to make that conscious space transparent in some ways, right? So like uh, Csikszentmihalyi's flow state 
is a very good example of this. Um, and many mystical experiences likewise can be looked at in this way, right? It's possible to attain states of consciousness where your ego isn't in the way, and those are good for you. It's good for you sometimes to have direct experience because it does relativize the importance. If you have an ego death experience, and I've had you know, more than a few, I guess. Uh, if you've had an ego death experience, one of the things that's so profoundly striking about it, right, is that you hit this moment and it's like, oh, like I am still experiencing or maybe still experiencing, <laughs> but also my what I identify as my regular mind is completely provisional. It's gone. It's a set of stories that I tell myself. Like there is some sense in which it is more tenuous and ephemeral than this normally quite locked in sense of my own identity that I'm operating under. And just having that experience, I don't think you have to sit in there all day. Sometimes it's important to like, make sure you get to the, you know, the bank and the post office before they close. Your regular mind has its role, right? But just relativizing that, just having that experience, again, has this effect of widening out both your own conscious sense of your experience and the potentials of your experience, but also I think it sort of teaches your mind or your brain that there are, you know, uh, more things in heaven and earth than dreamt of in your philosophy, right? You could just sort of explode it outwards. And the fact that there are modes of being where the ego is not playing a primary role and yet stuff is still happening, right? That's an important thing to have. Um, I just think it's about sort of softening and relativizing and rendering things transparent rather than obliterating. I think that that's actually a bit of a rhetorical license as a matter of the language of training. I don't, I actually don't believe that people are sort of blowing away their, their ego, uh, at least in the sense that I think of it, because I think if they did, they would just not be conscious anymore. Yeah. What you were saying about, uh, this sort of like whole, like every sense blind sight thing mm. that's, you know, hypothetical, um, it's really interesting connection to me since we discussed this in in uh, cognitive science in the context of uh, mm -hmm. computationalism and uh, sort of the inability to account for i believe chalmers philosophical zombie where mm -hmm. you know there's no difference between a machine that responds mechanically to everything and something that actually has qualia and experiences and um isn't completely blindsided right um, and so this i guess there's this connection to um psychodynamic theories that place that have an ego that retain an ego as a necessary component of the fully developed self. Yeah. So um, myself, John Verveke and our colleague, Richard Wu wrote something of a response to the, the, the P zombie um, a number of years ago. Um, and, you know, the crux of it was basically like this, you know, we play the thought experiment of the P zombie being like, well, it's conceivable of course, to have something that's like, but what we're not really considering is, yeah, okay, but what would it actually take to sort of build that machine, right? Like people say it as though there's a complete vacuum inside the P-Zombie's head, right? That it's just a set of mechanical processes with no experiential content attached to it. And it's like, okay, but what do you need in order to operate in, in this way? Like if you wanted to build a robot to do it, what would you have to do? And very rapidly, it seems like what you have to do is build up something that sounds an awful lot like consciousness to do it right? That it's not, it isn't, in fact, epiphenomenal. It isn't completely incidental. It's not, you know, it's not something that's tacked on afterwards and has no, no sort of functional aspect. It's got strong structural functional aspects. So, um, 
yeah so the the i think the p zombie is a bit of a mirage like i think you know it's and let me say it's not that i think that it is sort of literally impossible i believe that it is literally possible to have a p zombie right so i think that you could for instance have uh you know as a matter of like thermodynamic miracle right you could certainly have a person who walks around and just by a, like an extremely unlikely set of highly unlikely quantum events that are very improbable it walks around and talks and carries relationships and so on and so forth but one day it gets struck with a pin and it deflates like a balloon because it turns out there was nothing in there it, it just happened to work out that way that's not impossible it's possible right this is one of the things if you start thinking about like the many worlds hy hypothesis of in quantum mechanics right you get yourself down a road very quickly because you can consider any set of possible events and if quantum you know if many worlds ends up being what they go with and i don't think they probably will but if that ends up being then it means that someplace there's a universe out there where any damn thing you can imagine right is happening right so there's a universe where completely unrelated in any causal sense one day i decided i'm going to fly and random thermodynamic events happened to lift me off in the air and i flew around the city for half an hour it was completely coincidental to my desire to do so that i went where i wanted to and so on and so forth and then i sat down and i could never do it again but there was a different world where i did that for my whole life and after i died scientists desperately attempted to crack the case and possible worlds can admit all kinds of things and p zombies i think fall into that category but the question is whether or not they're probable and plausible and i think that talking about empty content like content empty complex processes is kind of a mirage i don't think that it's i don't think that it's actually a thing in practice um, i think that you can have certain amounts of blindsidey things but i also have the unconventional position that i suspect that even though we don't get an integrative aspect in blindsight that if we could talk directly to the pieces of brain involved that they are having uh, proto-conscious events occurring inside of them also. Now that said, I have no desire to get into a shit fight with Chalmers because he is, uh, he is, uh, terrifyingly sharp. It's a respectable position in uh, any scientific debate. Um, connected to this, there was another discussion I was part of recently, um, in the, with Corey Lewis, mm -hmm. and we were talking about, um, equanimity, the Buddhist principle, mm. and sort of his experience, um, well, the, the experience of one of the participants with um, sort of a Buddhist retreat where what was expected of them was in the training, like perfect equanimity from day one, like just always like, like no, no, no training period, just that's, that's what you need from day one. And so, so the sort of response of the group to this was like, well, doesn't it seem as if like one needs to go through certain emotions first before like real equanimity is a possibility and so this is again that sort of i guess what jung referred to as the first half of life that necess necessity of having an ego that exists in a real sense is developed in this good sense before mm -hmm. the possibility of stripping away parts of its uh considerations yeah if you had perfect equanimity what would you be going in for the training for <laughs> I mean, right? Uh, I don't know. Perfection is a bizarre idea, generally speaking, and I think in general taking a developmental approach. But you know, you see this, you see that particular kind of mode operating all over. So, like, one of the things, for instance, that, um, that I've talked about in other places is um, 
you get an idea, you used to get an idea, right? If, if you were sort of marking undergraduate philosophy papers, you would get these papers turned in first and second year courses that were just like, like chock full of, of like jargon, philosophical jargon. They were like a mucky pastiche of philosophy. And it used to be the case that people came down really hard on that. And th there is some, I think, utility to doing that, right? It's like, don't stop trying to talk like a philosopher and just try to express the ideas using language that you're familiar with. Don't over jazz your text with words that you don't actually know how to deftly deploy, right? Um, however, that also misses something. And what it misses is, of course, this like zone of proximal development, Vygotsky internalization kind of thing, which is what people are trying to do when they write a paper like that is they're, they're attempting to behave according to the conventions of the field just imperfectly. It's not that different than when you see kids, young kids, attempting to sort of mimic adult behaviors in detail and doing so in a way that we typically think is sort of cute and like clumsy, but they sort of get the details wrong, but you can see them attempting to imitatively, right? Um, engage in this behavioral like mimesis. Um, and that's important. It's part of learning. Well, it's no less part of learning when you're dealing with, with philosophy. It's like trying to sound like a philosopher is what everybody is doing. That's why, unfortunately, as I try to communicate, you know, if you're engaged in growth, you're gonna have imposter syndrome, period. And people expect that imposter syndrome is going to go away, and it doesn't. Because if you're actually pushing your skill set, then you're always operating at some level in the zone of proximal development. And by virtue of being in the zone of proximal development, you don't have it nailed down. And if you don't have it nailed down, then there are going to be days when you're going to be like, shit, I'm not really doing this. I'm just pretending to do it. I am creating a facsimile of doing it, and I've pulled the wool over people's eyes. But sooner or later, they're going to realize that's actually a sign that you are pushing on your skills, that you're experiencing that. Everybody is waiting for the day when it stops. If it stops, you're probably in trouble actually, uh, because it means that you have, you're, you're, you're no longer in a zone of proximal development. You're no longer in a growth, you know, stretch. Similarly, I would tend to say that with sort of spiritual virtues, you know, I, like it's supposed to be kind of a bit frustrating sometimes. There are great joys to it too, but the idea that you, at some level, are going to come in and already have all your like moral virtues perfected. I mean, <laughs> that seems to be setting a, a bar that is basically impossible. We wouldn't approach any other practical training task in that way. It's like nobody goes into the gym and expects to be able to bench 500 pounds off the bat. Um, you know, why would nobody expects to pick up an instrument and instantly be able to, once you can play Beethoven, we'll work backwards to the complex stuff. Like, what? No, you know, we, we do things imperfectly and then we internalize the patterns. And it's no different, I think, with sort of um, psychotechnologies to borrow the term. So yeah, that's a, that's a strange idea. Perfect equanimity right off the bat. Yeah, definitely. The, I see the parallels to, you know, perfect chastity for, you know, the expectation. Um, it is striking, to, well, has been striking to me, the sort of like Protestant theology and ethos how there's there's no there's no like sacrament of cleansing <laughs> that there is in you know say catholic or orthodox or jewish um traditions so it's sort of like you, you're gonna carry this state for you for the rest of your life it's always it's a strange thought how that must propagate through yeah uh i mean you know it's it very often seems that the post-lutheran god is a really like carries a grudge 
you know, never forgive, never forget. Uh, this is an extremely menacing position for an, an omnipotent being to be in. Like, it's just not a cosmology I'm interested in living inside. Um, and yeah. also completely inscrutable. So you can't really know uh, and you can't curry favor, forget that. Um, and certainly your rational means are not sufficient to the task. So what are you supposed to do exactly? Yeah. Be afraid. <laughs> be, yeah, be afraid. Um, be afraid and follow the rules. Um, yeah, to me, that seems... Obviously, I think that there's something that we lost um, in Christianity, particularly when we jettisoned much of the wisdom tradition. Uh, and a lot of that honestly has to do with these sort of psychotechnological systems, you know, uh, much as I think, for instance, alchemy, right, to, to bring it around to the union. You know, alchemy is not for everybody, but alchemy has been playing a valuable role in people's self-development for at least a couple of thousand years, probably longer um, as a system of describing how we can engage in intentional self-transformation. It's hard to understand. Most complex things are hard to understand. Nobody would expect to pick up an advanced physics textbook and understand it right off the bat. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, you know, we've jettisoned so much of that stuff um, in our lean towards one kind of um, instrumental sort of, you know, technocracy. Uh, that um, I think, you know, we're doing ourselves a profound disservice. And I like technology. I like shortcuts as much as anyone. Um, but, you know, let's maybe have a little bit more humility relative to, you know, people that came before us. And if you're going to have humility, you have to assume that you are sort of incomplete. But there's a difference between, like, humility with some rational basis for improvement and humility as, like, you shall be crushed beneath my heel, you maggot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we have come all the way to God at this point, <laughs> as it seems we often do. The very alchemical journey. We're also coming up on two hours, and I don't want to keep you forever. So, is there anything else you would like to leave for our listeners? Oh Lord, are you making me end on God? Um... <laughs> you can end on whatever you'd like. Uh, anything else that I would leave for for listeners? Um... Well, you know, I'm assuming I'm assuming that your listeners are probably already interested in these subjects. One thing that I would say in that respect, I guess, is um, uh, not not quite so far as follow your bliss, which I find to be a not very useful dictum. But like, um, if if these are subjects that interest you, don't don't let the fact that you do not maybe have an absolutely perfect defense lined up against everybody that tries to argue against you, stop you from exploring. It's like explore and explore in good faith. Maintain a somewhat rational critical stance. And I say somewhat rational because the rational approach is not always an optimal approach. It's easy to get sort of locked in. Um, but, you know, I would say continue to explore. There's an enormous amount of valuable material, lived material to be found in these spaces. Um, and it's a very do-it-yourself path in certain ways, but I would advise people to, of course, um, get themselves a good therapist or analyst. It's valuable to have somebody that you're doing the work alongside so you're not just playing mad alchemist in the hills. Um, there are limits to how far you can take a kind of autodidactic approach in my experience. But in general, it is enormously worthwhile. And so I would say um, to, to anybody that is sort of interested, like, double down. You'd be surprised what you can get if you really dedicate your efforts into something um, of this kind for 
a while and ignore the niggling little voice that says, this is worthless, this is useless, you've gone crazy, whatever. It's like, yeah, why don't you just be quiet? Two weeks of this isn't going to bother us. And then all of a sudden, um, by, by your fruits, uh, you sort of know that what you're doing is actually having an effect. That is the best way. Uh, and I guess fundamentally, that's sort of an experimental approach, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, I would add, I would just say that. The other thing that I would say really quick, if I have one minute, is <clears throat> just because I've had a few people ask me, uh, I, I am working in earnest on a web series uh, in which I will be attempting to bring together a great deal of this material. Um, anybody that's been to my YouTube channel can see that I have a bunch of previous courses and things of this kind up there. But I'm, I've been working on something a bit more comprehensive uh, that's trying to sort of synthesize and organize much of this material into uh, I've taken, I've I took as my challenge, John's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Uh, and so that was 51 hour episodes. I am pre-committing myself to 51, um, <clears throat> which is also it's quite a nice the standard to judge oneself by. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the, the answer is I, there isn't a shortage of material uh, <laughs> to discuss in there. Uh, and all of this came about, well, yeah, it came about when I tried to record a, a single lecture on alchemy and the first third of it ended up being four hours of solid material. And so I was like, okay, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So yeah, so that show will be called Opus. And I don't know uh, when exactly that's gonna drop. I can't uh, predict, but I have been earnestly doing organization and script work and putting together my camera equipment and developing editing skills and so on and so forth. So if you are indeed interested in this stuff, uh, I would say, oh, I guess this is where I'm supposed to do my naked pitch. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Subscribers, subscribe, please. Also subscribe to the Jungian Society uh, feed, if indeed there is one, which I believe you can subscribe to. But yeah, keep your eye on the skies. That should be coming out fairly soon. Yes, we have a Facebook and a Discord group, and I'm sure when... Uh... Opus is in existence and is very magnum. We will be sure to plug it uh, when possible for all of your viewing pleasure. So great. Uh, okay. It was a pleasure having you, Anderson. Um, yeah. Got covered um, a lot of topics. Yeah, the, the, pl the pleasure was mine, uh, James. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. And uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk in the future. I know there's quite a, quite a few things that you've worked on uh, that I know about in the past year that are, um, terrific conversational fodder that I want to ask after. So may, I could have you on my channel, maybe. Let's do that. Wonderful. Okay. All right. Thank you, Anderson. Right. Terrific. Thanks very much.